instead of uh, reading the scriptures all the way through, we'll be dealing with the entirety of chapter 12 and chapter 13 tonight. We'll just uh, read the opening verse of chapter 12 and then move on into a study of it. Chapter 12 of Zechariah, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth, stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth, and formeth the spirit of man within him. Tonight our message we've entitled, Prophecies Concerning the Future of Israel. This is the fourth of our studies in Zechariah as we've sought to briefly move through this uh, book that's so replete with such amazing uh, prophecies and such uh, comforting pictures for the people of God. Now we come to a portion of the book that is uh, among uh, the most difficult in all of Scripture to interpret uh, from here on through the end of uh, chapter 14. And... uh, I will be giving my views, and of course my views are never original. Cursed be those people who think our original thoughts before us. Is that the way it goes? Uh, And uh, certainly uh, my view is not the the only view or necessarily the predominant view. But we will mention other views as we go along, meanwhile primarily seeking to uh, get at the great truths involved here. You notice that uh, this is the burden concerning Israel. Now, the previous prophecies uh, in the uh, 10th and 11th verses and so on had to do with the uh, burden concerning the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach, and that's the first verse of chapter 9. And we suggested that uh, Hadrach was a a combination of two words, sharp, soft, uh, which had to do with the dual nature of the then-dominant world empire, but symbolized by that Medo-Persian empire was all world empires, and the prophecy of the downfall of that empire and the amazing description hundreds of years ahead of the march of Alexander the Great. the picture a statement of the rebellion of uh, the people of Israel against the Jews. Uh, In contrast to the uh, downfall of heathen nations and all kingdoms other than the kingdom of God, here we have the burden concerning Israel. And uh, a burden normally speaks of a threatening prophecy of doom, And here the threatening prophecy is primarily toward the enemies of Israel. And you have, first of all, in this section 12 and 13, a statement concerning the safety of Jerusalem, the safety of Jerusalem. Notice how it's brought before us. Verse 2. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. First of all, he says that the people 
who come against Judah and Jerusalem, that he will make Judah a cup of trembling. Uh, They come seeking to gulp up uh, Judah, and instead uh, they take a draught and they reel back, drunken and confounded, thwarted in their purpose. Then he uses another picture concerning the safety of Jerusalem. As he says, verse 3, In that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that shall burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Here's the picture of a group trying to lift a great stone, and they only harm themselves in seeking to lift it. And finally, in verse 4, the utter destruction of such forces. First, they're thwarting. Second, they're hurting themselves. And now, the utter destruction of such enemies of Jerusalem. Verse 4, In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people, meaning their enemies, with blindness. Uh, Two groups. To one, God opens his eyes. That is, to the people of Jerusalem, God's providential care, his eyes upon them to protect them. To the enemy, he smites uh, the uh, cavalry, which was, of course, the uh, great weapon of warfare of that day, every rider and every horse smitten with blindness, astonishment, madness, and so on. Complete destruction of the enemies of Jerusalem. Now, uh, here's this statement of the safety of Jerusalem. What is the significance of what is said here? Uh, does this mean uh, literal Jerusalem? Does this mean the Jewish people? Is this a prophecy of the safety of the Jewish people in some great battle future from Zechariah, possibly even future from us? It would have to be. The future from us, to say the least, if it was a literal battle against Jerusalem, because uh, up through our day, basically, Jerusalem has not been saved, unless we were to take into account just the recent events over there of the last several years. Certainly up to just the last several years, Jerusalem has been anything but safe. Uh, And uh, yet... I wonder if we should think of literal Jerusalem as what's involved here. There are other expositors. Some would say literal Jerusalem is what's involved in a great final war of all nations against Jerusalem, and we're seeing the uh, first uh, move of this in the present nations that have been gathered against her in recent years. That would be the interpretation of quite a wide group of Bible teachers. Then again, another group uh, would say, no, by Jerusalem we have symbolized the church of the living God, the people of God, who are in essence one. Uh, They uh, existed in the form of Jerusalem because the church, as true believers, were housed within Jerusalem, within the Jewish nation, up until the coming of Christ. And from then it passed over so that there were very few Jews and mostly Gentiles in that 
group of true believers in the church, and that this also, uh, uh, in whatever particular makeup it is involved, this church of the living God is what's in view here, and the Jews are really not in view at all. The church today is safe. It shall be protected against all of its enemies by God, and uh, very possibly some great gathering of the people of the world against the church in a final effort to persecute and overthrow the Christian faith, uh, that even then the church is absolutely safe in the providence of God. That's the second answer. It has to do with the people of God, the church, not with the Jews, except inasmuch as a few would make up the church also. Then there's a third answer. The third answer would be that both are true, that it is a picture of the people of God, the church, and the safety of these true people in his time, in future times, in this great final day of the gathering of the nations against the church. It speaks of the one people of God, whether they were in Jerusalem or whether they are now uh, primarily not involving Jewish people. But it also looks forward to the day when the Jewish people as a nation, the great body of Jewish people, would be regathered into the church. So that while it is the church, it is the church as encompassing a regathered Israel brought to true faith in Jesus Christ. That's the third answer. That's the answer that I personally believe is being taught here. That's the answer that uh, Charles Hodge, the famous Princeton theologian, comes up with, and a number of other men also. Let's look at it from that point for a moment and study on down. First, we've got the statement of the safety of this body of people. Second, we've got the source of their safety. In verse 5, the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength. The leaders of the people of God here shall say it's the people themselves that are our strength, but they draw their strength from the Lord. Be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In other words, ultimately, God's power in and through his people is the strength of this body to resist such overwhelming forces that have come up against them. He goes on with some detail concerning that, that this strength would be exercised through the people of God in such a way that none would be exalted over the other. It would be given to the humblest as well as to the greatest. And verse 8, In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. Even the most feeble shall be as strong as David, and the strong shall be like the angel of God in their strength, as God's power is manifested through his people in that day. Now, the next thing that we have is the salvation of the Jews 
brought before us. First, the safety of Jerusalem, whatever is meant by Jerusalem. Maybe it means literal Jerusalem. Maybe it means the literal Jews in the future. Maybe it means the church now and in the future. Maybe, as I think, it means the church now and in the future, particularly with the Jews gathered in, returning to him as a nation. Notice the salvation of the Jews that is now brought before us. In the 10th verse, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Notice, first of all, in connection with the salvation of the Jews, the pouring out of the Spirit I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace and of supplication. Now, the reason for believing that this is the literal Jews has to do with a statement about it being those who pierced. They shall look upon me whom they pierced. I believe this is the literal Jews, and the pouring out of the spirit of of prayer upon them, the spirit of supplication, a time in the future when God's spirit will begin to move upon the Jewish people so that they will begin to cry out to the true God. And as they do, suddenly there will be the perception of the pierced one. I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace, they don't deserve it, and of supplication as a result of this movement of God's spirit, they will begin to pray earnestly, and they shall look, suddenly the perception of the pierced one, they shall see me, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Notice the pierced one. Who is this one who has been pierced? It's the speaker. It's God. They shall look upon the pierced God. What a fantastic prophecy that God would be pierced. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. This verse is applied in the New Testament to Jesus Christ. When the soldier pierces his side with a spear, the statement is made, this was done that it might be fulfilled. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Certainly the pierced one is Jesus Christ, who was God. I and my Father are one. What an amazing statement of it here, 500 years before, that God would be pierced. And the penitence resulting from this perception of the pierced one, the penitence of the people, they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Only a Jew can appreciate that verse as to them to 
have an only son die with all of the connotation for posterity which was so important to the Jew. Uh, to mourn as one mourns for his only son uh, or as the mourning that took place uh, in the great defeat, the slaying of the good king Josiah in the valley of Megiddo is mentioned in the 11th verse. That kind of mourning. Tremendous penitence. Heartfelt sorrow on the part of the people. Verse 12, the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David and their wives, the family of the house of Nathan and their wives, the family of the house of Levi. And notice they're taking each group, the royal family, the kingly group, the priestly family, the whole land, the whole nation, a national mourning over the piercing of God. Here we have a turning of the Jewish people as a nation and having their eyes opened by God to see their Savior and to moan over the way they've treated him in deep repentance. A fantastic revival of true Christian faith in the Jewish people is predicted here. The purging from sin which would result from this. Verse 13, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Oh, that fountain was opened 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? When Christ died, when his side was pierced, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. That fountain's been flowing for 2,000 years, but not to the house of Israel. Well, by and large, the Jewish people have been blind to that fountain flowing right beside. But the day will come when God will do with the Jewish people like he did with Hagar. You remember Hagar? Abraham had a wife, Sarah. Sarah had no children. God had promised him children, but Sarah, in an effort of her own to fulfill the promise, gave him her handmaiden, Hagar. And he had a child, Ishmael, by Hagar. And then he had a child by uh, his own wife later. But at any rate, uh, Sarah was jealous of the fact that Hagar had conceived and ultimately she has him cast out the bondwoman with her child. And as she wanders in the wilderness, suddenly uh, overcome with fatigue and thirst, she sits down by a bush, the babe there beside her crying. And then God speaks to her. And he says, I've heard the crying, and if you look, you'll see a fountain. The fountain was there all along, but he opened her eyes to see it. One day, the nation of Israel, wandering in the wilderness these 2,000 years, God will open her eyes to see that fountain right beside her, so available, the fountain flowing with blood and water, blood to pardon, water to cleanse, justification and sanctification to purge from sin, 
And the result of her turning will be a genuine reformation of her ways. Verse 2, It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And I shall also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. Two great sins of Israel, idolatry and false prophecy, and as a result of this fountain being opened, no more idolatry, no more false prophecy, a zeal to deal with sin, so much so that even when uh, the parent finds a child engaging in it, she will deal harshly or he will deal harshly with the son in order to be right with the Lord, as brought out then about if you found your son with some of these characteristics. Fantastic turning from all sin, a removing of the idols. Finally, the third great thing that's stated here in this passage is the smiting of the shepherd. First, the south the safety of Jerusalem, second, the salvation of the Jews, and now the smiting of the shepherd. In verse 7 of chapter 13, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the, the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand to the little ones. Number one, the sword which smites. Awake, O sword. What sword is this? The sword is a symbol of judicial authority and power, judicial punishment. Awake, O sword. The sword that is the punishment due for sin. God calls it to get busy, to use Luther's translation, to get busy, to strike out against who? against the man who is my fellow, against the shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow. And some of your translations who would say, who is my nearest kin? And some would say, who is my equal? God calling on the sword of his justice to come to life and to strike the man, a man, who is his nearest kin. Again, it could only speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks of vicarious atonement, of God punishing one who is closest to him, who is his shepherd. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ brought before us 500 B.C. in such an amazing way. You remember the shepherd we looked about in the last passage that we studied last week. The shepherd who would shepherd the flock of Israel, and they would weigh for his price 30 pieces of silver. They didn't want him as a shepherd, and they would pay him his hire, that of a slave who'd been gored by an ox. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my closest kin. This is quoted in the New Testament in Matthew 26, 31 and 32, as being fulfilled in reference to Christ's death. Christ told his disciples the night before he was betrayed, he said, This night I will be betrayed, and you will all deny me. And they said, No, never. He said, Yes, for it is written, Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. 
This is about to take place. The sheep who are scattered, who are they? Well, obviously, number one, they would be the disciples who were scattered, who denied Christ, Peter and John and the others. But it wasn't all just those sheep. There are three groups that are brought before us here. The scattering of the sheep would have to do first with his own disciples, but he would bring them back to himself. It would have to do with the entire nation of Israel who would be scattered throughout the world. Verse 8, It shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. And they shall call on my name, and I will hear them. And I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. We have another group mentioned, I think, in the last part of the seventh verse. Smite the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones, or I will protect the little ones. I would say that you've got three groups. You've got one group who are little ones that really did believe in him or would come to believe in him, and he would protect them, Peter and then the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost and others. And then you've got another group who would, as a result of this shepherd being smitten, they would be scattered ultimately. They would die, be cut off. great majority of the people of Israel be cut off. And that happened in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But then there'd be a third group who would be put in the furnace of affliction, but be kept so that they wouldn't cease to be, and they wouldn't be so scattered as to be non-existent, uh, to lose their identity as a people. And he would keep them in the furnace of affliction until one day they cried out to him. They called on the name of the Lord their God. And he says, Then when they call on me, I will hear them, and I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. And maybe we're close to that day now. Maybe the things that we're seeing take place are very close to the time when Israel shall turn, and the Spirit of God will move. And the people shall begin to cry to the God of the father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then God will suddenly open their eyes. The exact situation, the exact circumstances, I have no idea. God will open their eyes so that they will see Jesus Christ as their pierced Savior. And they will be penitent in a way that we can hardly imagine and they will purge themselves of sin and of idolatry and of false prophecy. This is yet to be, and yet it's brought before us here in a very real way. I would say that these things take place maybe in part even now. When any Jew turns, his eyes are open. But the great turning of the nation is yet before us. What do we know from these things? We know, number one, the Bible's true. How else these fantastic prophecies about the shepherd who would 
have the sword of God's justice plunged into his own breast. The shepherd who would be a man and yet who would be God's nearest kin. How this prophecy about God being pierced. What a fantastic weight of evidence for the Bible's being true. I tell you, that kind of evidence is unshakable. It's all that a man needs to believe it thoroughly. That kind of evidence, when placed on the other side of the balance from the puny, ridiculous objections that are often raised about the truthfulness of Scripture, far outweighs all objections that have ever been asked about Scripture. Number two, the church is safe. The people of God are safe. True, Satan and all of his forces will rant against us, but the true church will stand. I don't know that the Southern Presbyterian Church will stand. I don't know that uh, any denomination will stand, but I know that the true believers, the gates of hell, shall not prevail against them. And then the third thing, the conversion of the Jews shall come to pass. This is a great thing to look forward to and to pray for. It's promised and it's prophesied. And then finally, all true repentance arises from the sight of a crucified Savior. You know, we can preach the law and we can scare men, and we should. We can bring home the guilt of sin, and we should. But the thing that really breaks a man's heart is when he sees that God so loved that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. God so loved. God loves like that. That breaks your heart for all the things you've done against him. Finally, I just say this, that that fountain of pardon and purity is flowing beside many a person who's never really seen it, who's still blind to it. But if you'll pray and ask God to, he'll open your eyes to perceive that fountain. He'll show you Jesus Christ in all of his saving authority and capacity, this very night, if you will say, God, I am a terrible sinner, I want you, I want to be right with you, I want Jesus Christ as my cleansing fountain, I commit my life to him in trust and in surrender. This night, your eyes will be opened. This night, you will be purged from your sins, and you will receive the power of of God's Spirit that will enable you to put out of your lives the idolatry and the false things that are so immeshes. And I would urge you tonight to commit your life to Christ in that way if you've never done it.